0: You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcast interview with Nperva Joshipura, Senior Vice President at PTUK. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I wrote Survival at Stake for this very reason, because I've been working in animal rights for nearly the past 25 years. And throughout that time, there's been one common question that is asked, which is, well, shouldn't we deal with human issues first? But Animal rights is human rights. Animal rights is environmentalism. These things are not distinct. And that's the point I was really trying to make in my book. I was inspired to write it because of the COVID-19 crisis. It, It just brings us back to the point of why it is so important to teach people and to teach young people the importance of being kind to everyone, animals included. Because if you teach them that, I think the other lessons start to automatically transfer over. When we consider that different species of animals require different abilities to thrive in their natural environments, this makes sense. A gibbon does not need to know how to file taxes, but she must be able to recognize which branches are the strongest at a glance. Gibbons travel up to 15 meters with each swing and move faster than 55 kilometers an hour across the jungle canopy. What if intelligence tests were based on this or some of the other countless other impressive traits animals have that we don't. They are typically not only because humans create these tests with just human qualities in mind. Dolphins and other toothed whales use echolation for navigating the ocean and finding food. Elephants appear to communicate over miles through foot stomping. Tigers and many other species leave complex messages through olfactory markings. Pigeons use Earth's magnetic field to find their way over vast distances, the list goes on. Humans cannot naturally do any of these or many other things animals can do. We can only attempt to understand the full breadth of how animals make use of the information they gather through the unique ways they perceive the world. In Survival at Stake, I actually talk about how animals are our ancestors. You know, we all came from a fish-like creature, all of us vertebrate species that, you know, came from this common ancestor. And so if we look at ourselves and, you know, our bone structure and compare it to other animals, we'll see a lot of similarities. And so it's no wonder then that we have a, a lot of very important similarities with animals. Yes, we may be different in a lot of ways, but we're the same as them in all of the ways that really matter. One of the things I describe is animal experimentation. However, what I focus on is the mere act of putting the monkey in a cage. Not even about the poisoning, not even about the surgeries and all of the other things that also happen to that animal, but just taking the monkey out of the forest, putting that monkey in a cage and depriving that animal of their family and everything that is naturally important to them just how much that act causes them to suffer and i think it's not even always about the egregious cruelty but every single thing that we do to animals for food clothing for experimentation entertainment from birth to death is a horror and it's very important for us to always when we're looking at animals to think about would we like for that to happen to us you know, people sometimes ask me, what do I consider good animal welfare? And it's really as simple as that. Ask yourself, would you want to be in that animal's place? Would you want to be living a life, hauling a carriage full of tourists, for instance? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing that to that animal either. Yes, a short lifespan, tiny little animals with tiny little brains, but Something I talk about in my book is that now we know with computer chips and so on that size doesn't necessarily determine capacity. And that if we just look at insects, they're doing such amazing things. They're navigating flight, for instance, making decisions if they see a threat on how to move away. They're going from flower to flower, knowing which one has pollen and They're communicating with each other. I mean, they're doing so many amazing things if we're simply willing to look. And they do such a service to humans. Pollination is one thing, but so many other things like aerating the soil or making sure that dead animals are not simply left to decay, cause disease and all sorts of work is done by insects and so i dedicate an entire chapter in my book to insects because they're inherently valuable not just because of what they do for human beings or for the planet and they're very fascinating but also because of their contribution to making this planet and therefore us healthy And I do think with AI, it is our societal responsibility to be aware of how it can be used to harm animals. For instance, there's the worry that the same types of ways that AI might help for instance, protect against poachers. That same technology can also be used to find the animals to poach or to damage, and not only protect wildlife. So there's that concern. There's a the concern about factory farming and how already animals are fully disregarded in that process. And AI could even further automate that process to where there's no consideration of the animals at all, even worse than what goes on today. At the same time, AI can be already is starting to be used for doing better than what we're able to do in terms of determining how well a drug might behave or how a chemical might react by looking at all of the data together that exists and drawing a conclusion better than a human being can do. So there's ways that AI are already being put to use in terms of reducing how animals are used in a laboratory setting. And as you say, AI, we, we don't even know, we're just getting started with it, can possibly do things. There's a lot of research right now about deciphering what animals are saying. The question is, are we going to listen to those animals? You spoke of speciesism, and you in your own field have encountered sexism when you first started out difficult being a woman in your field. When I think of sexism in relation to where I've faced it in the workplace, I think the first thing that comes to mind is our efforts against a form of bull racing, which happens in India. It's called Jelika 2. It's going on right now. It happens during certain time of the year and it's very much like running of the bulls that happens in Pamplona where a bunch of men get together to chase a bull the bull gets so terrified that he runs into things he breaks his bones sometimes the bull dies he runs top speed into some of these participants and kills many of them too and you know the whole idea is to show how how tough you are and when we started campaigning against uh, this spectacle. It wasn't a surprise considering how these men were willing to treat someone who's more vulnerable to them and bully this bull. That same attitude was then transferred over into how they were reacting to us and especially me because I was leading that campaign. And so their comments were sexist, so incredibly disrespectful, and they tried the same bullying approach where we started receiving death threats at our office. It was exactly what they do to bulls, but just transferred over. I'm just thinking about who are some of those early teachers that might've set you on a path of embracing the natural world and the connection with animals. My grandmother was definitely one of them. She was the kind of person who taught us not to crush bugs. That if we saw an insect in the house, she would gently put them outside. She loved animals, was very enthusiastic about them. And that passed on to my father. Uh, He would always watch nature documentaries and this kind of thing. And my parents grew up vegetarian. But it was only because they moved to the United States, which was at that time a more meat-eating society, that they've lost track of that connection with the natural world, so to speak, and which has been regained now. So my grandmother was definitely one of them. I would go right back to that very simple thing of treat animals the way that you would like to be treated. And I know that humane education is becoming a more welcome subject or way of teaching in schools. And I definitely think we need more of that where it's not you go to school and learn about maths and science and history and so on, but learn about those subjects within the realm of real life issues and real life problems, such as animal welfare or climate catastrophe. I think we need to equip young people with the challenges of the world that they're entering into and the way that the world is set to be. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.